Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I will be your host for today's interview. And I'm speaking today with Mark Robinson. Dr. Robinson is an assistant professor of history at California State University, San Bernardino, and is the author of the new book, Washington State Rising, Black Power on Campus in the Pacific Northwest, which came out this past summer in 2023 with New York University Press. Welcome to the New Books Network, Mark. Good to have you here. Thank you. Appreciate the interest. Thanks for inviting me. First, why don't we start, as we always do on this show, but just hearing a little bit about who you are. Tell us a bit about your background, and I'm especially interested in how uh, you got involved in and became interested in history. Well, um, background first. Uh, so I grew up in Seattle, Washington. I uh, was born and raised there, and, um, you know, eventually um, came to study history really you know, from, I mean, from, you know, middle school, I, I long had an interest in history and, um, and current events and that kind of stuff. Um, and so in some ways it's a, a story that goes back, but, um, particularly when I was in college as an undergraduate, um, I was really struck by, um, some of the politics of the time. This was the era of the George W. Bush administration and, uh, there was a lot of conversations around the Iraq war, which was coming and then came and, um, and, you know, sort of related injustices, uh, that I saw at the time, um, I was taking courses in women's studies and, and other ethnic studies. Um, and that kind of really got me thinking about, uh, social, you know, issues. Um, and, and for me, history was a way of kind of getting at a lot of those things and trying to understand what had happened in the past and, uh, you know, how we might intervene in the present. And so, um, you know, uh, those kind of academic activities along with, uh, as a student, as an undergraduate, I was a student activist myself and kind of involved in some, uh, <laughs> some attempts. Um, I would say, uh, my heart was in the right place, but maybe, you know, I had some things to learn, you know, I'm sure as, as many, many folks do. Um, and so, uh, kind of as I was learning and, um, kind of getting involved again, history became a great way of thinking about, you know, what did student activism look like in the past? Uh, what are some lessons that could be learned from previous efforts, movements, initiatives? Um, and so a lot of those things came together. Uh, and um, kind of led to my kind of research project, which eventually led to the book project. Um, but, uh, you know, all of that kind of are different strands of the story. And one other thing I would add, too, is, um, you know, growing up in Seattle, um, you know, I was a part of, you know, obviously 
you know, my, my family, I'm, I'm African-American, so my, you know, black family and community. I remember hearing stories about, um, you know, the civil rights and black power activism uh, just growing up around, you know, around the dinner table or around the Thanksgiving meal. Um, but oftentimes those terms weren't used, you know, you know, black power wasn't necessarily used, but it was referenced. Um, and in school, I would hear basically nothing uh, about, you know, any kind of local black history or, you know, movement history. Um, and so I think not learning about those things was another thing that motivated me to try to find out on my own once I did get to college, um, because I was really curious to kind of see what I could uncover. And then once I kind of started to get a sense of, wow, there's a story to be told here, or a story to learn, that was a good motivator to have me keep going and, and really try to find out what happened in my own hometown. Well, I'm curious if you could talk a bit more about what brought you to the topic of this book. Um, I mean, you mentioned a moment ago your own involvement in campus activism, which seems like it was sort of a direct uh, road into the genesis of this book in particular. Yeah, it was. It, it was. Um, it, you know, so uh, I was an undergraduate at at the University of Washington. Um, you know, I was born and raised in Seattle, as I mentioned, um, and so. Uh, I remember when, when I was in high school, um, the WTO, the World Trade Organization protests, oftentimes known as the Battle of Seattle, took place, uh, you know, while I was in high school. And I remember kind of seeing and, and playing a small part in, in some of the activities, some of the protests. Um, you know, I, I remember, uh, you know, there was a few years later, major protests, uh, you know, obviously against the Iraq war, as I mentioned, and also for immigration reform, maybe a little bit after that. And so, you know, uh, it was a period of time that there was quite a bit of activity going on, um, you know, addressing a number of issues. Um, and yeah, my, my involvement in some of those things was enough to to get me asking questions and enough to pique my curiosity. Um, and so that that curiosity to to know more of the backstory, to understand the context that I was sort of living in, um, and to connect it to you know where I was living at the time, you know where I was from, Seattle, uh, in the Pacific Northwest. You know, all those things really came together to kind of motivate the the research project. Um, and it began as a as a kind of senior undergraduate paper. Um, I, I wrote, I did some research at a couple of interviews and kind of wrote up a, a fairly short, I think it was maybe 10 pages or so, uh, research paper uh, for a class, uh, specifically on the Black Student Union at the University of Washington in 1968. Um, you know, there was a, a major protest that year where some students took over the university president's office. Um, and that that event um, was something that was almost like kind of a secret in a way. I mean, in a sense that uh, some people knew about it and it was sort of talked about, but it, it really wasn't something that the university at that time was really celebrating or uh, that history um, 
you know, was, yeah, to, to some degree kind of under, uh, I guess, yes, yeah, so not really well circulated. So, um, so I, I kind of had to do some digging on myself and asking around and getting some information and, and that led to that first paper. Um, and so, you know, from there, the project grew as a, uh, kind of a PhD dissertation and then it, you know, grew more into other publications and conference papers and kind of reworking it, expanding it, uh, adding further insights as I continued my academic career um, and then basically became a book. Um, that's amazing that this started as a, a senior undergrad paper. I'm going to have to start pointing to this book as an example for my my seniors, history majors who are writing papers to me and say, look, your your paper too can become a book someday. Just keep working at it. Um, that's That's really interesting. Um, well, let's get into the book a bit itself. Let's, let's get into the, the story, the history that you tell. And to begin, I'm going to ask a, a big question to kind of get us uh, started off here. I'm wondering if you can set the scene, kind of set the context here a bit, and tell us about the history of civil rights activism and black power, specifically in the Pacific Northwest in the 1950s and 1960s, just to kind of uh, set us in place a bit before we kind of dive more deeply into the story of these college campuses. So... To tell the story, we have to start really with the 1940s and the mobilization around World War II. Because for cities along the West Coast, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and you know various places in between, uh, the 1940s expansion of the war industries was the time where you had large numbers of African Americans relocating from the South to these West Coast cities. Uh, in many cases for the first time. So you had, you know, migrants coming uh, who were new to the area. Um, you know, there were small black communities in these cities prior to that, um, but they were indeed quite small. And so in Seattle, for example, um, prior to the 1940s, um, African-Americans were not the largest non-black group. Uh, Japanese Americans were actually the largest uh, kind of minority group or, or group community of color uh, throughout the you know first decades of the 20th century. Um, it's in the 1940s where African Americans uh, become the largest community of color, um, in part because of this migration and also, of course, because of the Japanese internment, uh, which is a tragic kind of underside to this story. Um, so we start there and we see this kind of large increase of um, the African-American population, which uh, influences the degree to which we see uh, activism taking shape, right? So, so one of the early uh, efforts that we see in the city was a campaign to enforce the, the policies that were supposed to ensure job access in the war industries um, from, you know, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and, and other um, officials in response to national protests by individuals like A. Philip Randolph, right? There, there was um, policies put in place that was supposed to ensure that African-Americans and, and everyone would have access to jobs in the war industries um, 
in Seattle and elsewhere, um, getting the policy was one step. Actually having it enforced and followed was oftentimes another matter. So um, one of the early incidents that I talk about in my book was an effort specifically targeting Boeing, right? Boeing, the you know airplane company, um, was a, a huge employer at the time in Seattle, uh, was a, a major recipient of um, contracts from the military. And so um, getting access to employment was uh, a major goal. However, the company had a history and practice of uh, kind of denying African-Americans jobs there. Uh, and so there was a successful campaign to uh, change the practices at the company to hire African-Americans. Um, you know, really, you know, 1942, 43, around, you know, over those years. Um, and and I, I think it's an important moment both for how it impacted the economies of those who got hired and, and, and their broader community. But it's also a point where we see the emergence of, of what I would call the, the kind of modern black freedom struggle of, of Seattle. Um, and uh, it clearly marks some of a turning point. Uh, fast forward then from you know the 1940s into the 50s and into the 60s, um, we have continued migration of African-Americans into the city of Seattle, um, along with other communities around the Pacific Northwest. Um, you know, this um, adds to the strength of, you know, lobbying efforts of organizations like the National Association for the Amassment of Colored People, NAACP, or, you know, the Urban League, which had local chapters in, in Seattle, um, as well as, you know, kind of grassroots organizations that had, that were started in the city and in the surrounding area. Um, we have continued migration, uh, continued agitation. Um, then in the 1960s, things kind of ratchet up again uh, with what, what I would call the, the beginning of the city's civil rights movement. Because uh, there you have this period really from about 60, 61, uh, and to the rest of the decade, uh, a series of, you know, direct, um, not, you know, strikes or uh, protests, boycotts, demonstrations, addressing um, both economic discrimination, but also uh, housing and uh, employment uh, and um, education as well as even, you know, issues with law enforcement. Um, you had a series of events in the city that would resemble the kinds of other uh, large protests that we saw throughout the country, throughout the civil rights movement. Um, this this was sort of an escalation to the earlier campaign to, you know, address bullying or, or other things. Uh, this was much more sort of uh, oriented towards sort of mass protests and, and large demonstrations. Um, so... That, that's an important part of the kind of setting the scene, you know, is this kind of increasingly vocal black population, increasingly uh, sizable and, um, you know, one that, you know, came in search of opportunities, but also were frustrated, you know, frankly, by some of the limitations. Um, one particular example of this sort of uh, 
disappointment that they found was that um, some of the housing discrimination and limitations, like, you know, on where African-Americans could live was quite strong uh, in the city of Seattle, uh, particularly as the black population increased. And so you end up where this one particular area of uh, the kind of central part of the city, often called the central district or central area, um, ends up being the location where the predominantly uh, or African-Americans are kind of limited in terms of their housing options. Uh, obviously, schools in the area are similarly segregated. Um, and there's all kinds of issues with, you know, high density, low quality, of, you know, housing options, uh, you know, high rents or high costs, uh, and so forth. Um, so th that's all sort of part of the, the context. Um, and then the other thing I would also mention is, you know, particularly, so, you know, my book takes place in the late 1960s. Um, and so, you know, the years prior, um, one has to mention the Vietnam War uh, as another kind of contributing factor to setting the scene. Um, you know, uh, by the late 1960s, uh, the protests or the, the efforts and groups who were trying to oppose, trying to force the United States to kind of leave the Vietnam War or to get, get, you know, get out of the conflict, um, were increasingly vocal and active. Um, you know, in Seattle in particular, you know, there was significant protests um, and, you know, organizations that were speaking out against the war, organizing both uh, on university campuses and, and off campus. Um, and so both the opposition to the war as well as just the overall sense of danger, uh, you know, I think for a lot of college age, uh, college age people, particularly, you know, males, um, you know, really felt the weight of the potential draft and the potential war service uh, and the, the, like, the, the chance of getting killed um, as, a, as a really serious, uh, like I said, a weight or uh, something that really kind of put a, sh put a shade over the whole era. Um, and so that, that too kind of is part of setting that scene is sort of understanding that uh, there was this kind of heightened tension um, with both the kind of ongoing national and, and race-based kind of activism, as well as, you know, activism against the war and just general concerns about the potential for the being drafted into war. So that's kind of the, the, the big picture here. And one thing that I think your book does really well is shows how these large-scale global and national issues, how they play out in uh, a pretty intensely local context. And the book, it, you know, it's really tracking political activism on two college campuses in the Pacific Northwest at the University of Washington and at Washington State University. And I have a couple questions about, about these campuses. Um, for one thing, I'm curious why you chose these two campuses in particular. And I'm wondering, too, if you can describe what these two places looked like in the 1960s, how their specific campus politics were shaped by their very kind of different locations on two different sides of the state. Sure. So I'll start with the University of Washington is, is in Seattle. Um, 
I chose it because it was it was and still is the, the largest um, university of the state. It's, it's the flagship school uh, of the the state of Washington, particularly in the you know public higher ed system, but arguably, uh, you know, overall. Um, and so it's a, it's a major institution. Um, it is, uh, can, you know, it was, it continues to be, um, a source of access, you know, it's a, a place where, you know, folks who want to pursue education, particularly if you grew up in the in the Seattle area, that's that's where you would look to go for higher ed. One of the main places you would look to go. Um, Washington State University is the second largest uh, university of the of the time period, and and likely still today. Um, and so, both you know, University of Washington in Seattle and Washington State University uh, in Pullman are kind of the the two most uh, influential or significant higher ed institutions, uh, which is, you know, why I think they, they merit study. Um, in terms of location, uh, Washington State University is in Pullman, Washington, which is on the eastern edge of the city, uh, excuse me, eastern edge of the state, um, all the way basically on the Washington-Idaho border. Um, and so it's in a, a rural area um, known for agriculture, um, particularly it's known for its uh, wheat fields. So kind of growing kind of dry cultivation crops. Uh, it's surrounded by this area where you have kind of miles and miles of rolling uh, wheat and other kind of dry agriculture. Um, it's known certainly at the time as being uh, conservative, um, uh, being one that was both predominantly white and predominantly rural, um, but along with that, you know, identified with a certain kind of politics and then uh, a certain set of ideas that were much more uh, supportive of, you know, the American mainstream, you know, the establishment, if you want to call it that, or the status quo. Um, pro Vietnam, pro war, uh, supported the U.S. government, not questioning authority, um, and really uncomfortable with the kinds of demands that was being made by the civil rights movement. Um, you know, calls for uh, you know greater racial reform or you know uh, access and um, kinds of. Uh, policies to support African-American rights, Th those kinds of things would have seemed foreign, maybe even threatening. Um, and so, you know, in general, there was a kind of hostility to what we might generally call the left, right? So um, that that was the sort of social context in, in Poland and the surrounding area, perhaps even more so. Um, Seattle, by, you know, by contrast, uh, at the time, and socially and politically uh, is more mixed, right? It's it's a larger city. You have more of a variety of points of view, even among the white population in Seattle, right? So so there is a, a certain, you know, sizable percentage of, you know, Seattleites um, who do not support 
the you know left you know efforts of the time period. Um, you know, Seattle was and still is a majority white city, and um, of the the kind of white residents, uh, you know, yeah, there there was certainly many who were uncomfortable themselves with the calls for reform for the we were uncomfortable with the civil rights movement. You know, one thing I talk about in in the book again is how. When you know Martin Luther King came to Seattle to give a couple to to, to speak, give a couple speeches, um, and uh, 1961, and there was an organized opposition uh, to try to uh, prevent his speaking because he was deemed to be too controversial and um, and you know thought to be um, kind of bad influencer or some kind of troublemaker. Uh, that just gives us a sense that, um, you know, there were certainly folks who lived in Seattle who um, were uncomfortable with, with any, no matter how, you know, kind or no matter how uh, gentle the calls for change might be, there were some who were opposed. Um, so that was certainly part of it. But there was also, you know, a, a, an active left uh, in the city, um, you know, we, be they kind of, liberals or, you know, more kind of left-leaning college students or uh, folks from all ages who, you know, really identify with some of the uh, kind of broader social change happening at the time. Um, there, there, there was uh, that as well. And so um, it, it created an environment where there was much more kind of political capital um, for black activists to access, um, you know, enough to at least sort of navigate certain kinds of challenges and, and try to put pressure on an institution like the university. Uh, in contrast, in Pullman, there really wasn't those uh, avenues um, to kind of access, you know, political capital or to be able to um, bring pressure or support from the, you know, outside. Uh, one other thing I'll mention is, you know, Seattle had a, you know, significant African American population. Um, the University of Washington was located not far from the Central District. That's kind of predominantly black area that I was just mentioning earlier. Um, and so, you know, even though the uh, the percentage of African Americans was relatively small, um, you did have black churches, you know organizations, um, a kind of track record of activism, as I mentioned, from World War II, uh, all of that could be kind of drawn upon or, or connected with um, students could kind of draw on those things in the late 60s. And Pullman, by contrast, again, Eastern Washington, that wasn't there, right? There were no black churches. There, there was no community um, to speak of um, in terms of like a, an established kind of you know, area or population that one could draw draw on, um, and so, you know, all those all those kind of differences sort of made um, Pullman a much more challenging environment. Um, not to say that Seattle was, you know, without its challenges as well. I, I don't mean to, you know, push the point too hard, but um, it definitely did kind of affect what was possible and, and kind of how the, the activists in both locations pursued their goals. 
Well, let's talk about those goals and how they went about achieving those goals. Uh, and why don't we start uh, at the University of Washington? And in the book, the sort of pivotal moment happens in uh, the winter of 1967 as it's turning over into 1968 when students at the University of Washington organize and found uh, the state's first black student union. So can you describe a bit the history of BSUs and the significance of the founding of this particular black student union in Seattle in 1968? In terms of the, the beginning of the BSU um, at the University of Washington, to understand how that all comes about, we kind of have to back up a little bit to uh, San Francisco. And so um, part of what's really fascinating that I found in my research is that there is this really strong connection between the Bay Area of California and Seattle, um, which really we see reflected in the history of the Black Student Union. Uh, and it's a history that in some ways was surprising. I, I found it initially surprising because you would think that in a time before cell phones or in a time before email and other, you know, more modern technology, um, it would be hard for students across, you know, what, thousands of miles, hundreds of miles uh, to communicate. Um, but uh, despite those limitations and despite, you know, uh, the, you know, the technology of the time period, letters in the mail or, you know, using newspapers or other kinds of means to kind of follow each other's progress, uh, they did. Um, and, and I, and as, as I reflected on it further, I thought about, um, it, it's, it's likely connected to that history of the great migration and some of these migratory patterns where, uh, families or friends knew each other across the, the Pacific, um, West coast. And, you know, um, some of these connections kind of remained uh, on some level uh, into the 60s. Um, so uh, specifically uh, in, in San Francisco at the university, uh, San Francisco State University, um, that's where you have the first Black Student Union start. Uh, it starts in 1966. And, um, you know, very quickly, one of its main goals is both to uh, support grassroots off-campus Black communities, um, trying to create programs for kind of youth education, uh, supporting efforts to uh, improve uh, housing and, and you know, um, kind of off-campus life for African-Americans, um, and then also very much engaged in a effort to create a Black Studies program and later department um, that would include curricula on you know, the history, literature, art, music, uh, and so forth of, of African-Americans. Um, the first BSU starts at San Francisco State. Um, within months, you uh, we have, you know, other universities across the West Coast, across California, uh, establishing their own black student unions um, by that fall of 67, uh, there is a kind of regional conference where, you know, folks were all over the, the West Coast were invited to come uh, to a conference in Los Angeles. Um, several members of Seattle's kind of Black youth community 
goes and attends the conference, including many students from the University of Washington. Uh, at that conference, you know, at the various workshops and other discussions are held. Uh, at least one of the workshops is on uh, the Black Student Union as both a organization, but also as a kind of methodology. Um, and the students from the University of Washington um, were, you know, very excited, very um, inspired by the presentation, uh, connected with the, the activists from San Francisco State and elsewhere uh, that they met, and, you know, very quickly, you know, decided to kind of take up the charge and bring the organization and bring the mission to Seattle. And so, um, again, that was in that fall. Uh, it was actually Thanksgiving weekend of 1967. Uh, so then once they returned to campus, you know, in December, uh, they did begin some kind of early activities, but it was, you know, very limited. You know, my understanding is that the the quarter of their school year, their fall quarter was ending not not long after that. And so, you know, they had to wrap up their studies and take their exams and, you know, there was winter break. Um, following that, then we get into the very early early months of 68. Um, and so uh, that February 1968 is when we really see the Black Student Union at the University of Washington really emerge as a, a very uh, kind of vocal and influential player uh, in the campus politics. Uh, they would soon become the most most influential, most powerful student organization. Um, but yeah, they, they begin to sort of... Uh, really express themselves on campus uh, in that February, uh, right at right the beginning of the winter quarter, basically, uh, February of 68. So uh, they did this through um, kind of addressing student newspaper, uh, putting out their own statements, as well as being interviewed. Uh, they sent letters to the university president, um, and they began kind of a series of Kind of teach-ins and other ways of connecting with students uh, as well as faculty and administration to uh, express their point of view, uh, articulate their grievances, and and build support, build a, a kind of base of um, allies, um, uh, many white allies uh, who they could then kind of um, kind of call upon or at least sort of. Uh, build on that support to then put pressure on the university. Well, let's talk about 1968 at the University of Washington. And 1968 is, of course, uh, an incredibly, hugely tumultuous year in, in American history. And while that's, of course, true nationally, it's also true on college campuses, which are often at the center of all of the, 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 the tumult and upheaval that's going on in the United States. And that's true on the campus of the University of Washington as well. So I'm curious if you could talk a bit about how all of these sort of national events and upheavals, uh, how they're affecting places like Seattle and how the Black Student Union at the University of Washington is responding to these events, events like the assassination of Martin Luther King, for instance. Yeah. Um, so yeah, 1968, right? It, it's it's quite, quite a tumultuous year. Uh, as you said, um, you know, so much happens in, in the span of months from, you know, the the Tet Offensive 
to you know the assassination of uh, Robert F. Kennedy towards the end of the year and you know the election um, uh, that's coming. Uh, the, the Democratic National Convention, I have to say, kind of debacle in sh- Chicago, right? And there's a lot of stuff that's that's happening, um, all of which is reverberating in Seattle and on the campus of the University of Washington in various ways. Uh, one one particular example of this kind of reverberations that I, that I, po- I point to uh, is, as you said, around the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., right? So... Um, in April, April fourth, nineteen sixty-eight, you know, King is assassinated. Um, this touches off a wave of uh, mourning, of outrage, of rioting. In, in many cases, uh, throughout the country, different cities and towns, people take to the streets. Um, that's also true in Seattle. That there was uh, disturbances, uh, as the newspapers called it. Um, you know, you know some. Uh, rock throwing or other kinds of uh, destruction of property and uh, kind of outrage expressed um, in the city in the aftermath of King's assassination. Um, so you have these sort of national trends or national events that are affecting the city. Um, but also, simultaneously, there were these local, you know, local developments that are also kind of being kind of interwoven into this moment. Um, and so one particular case that happens right around the same time uh, involves the Black Student Union at the University of Washington and a protest at a local high school. Right, so um, right towards the end of March, uh, there was a group of high school students at this, you know, Franklin High School, the school in South Seattle, the southern part of the city, um, that, you know, were uh, fed up with a number of policies at the school, including reportedly school officials were punishing uh, female black students for wearing their, uh, wearing the Afro hairstyle, wearing, you know, saying that it was kind of unprofessional or unladylike to to having, and and so, you know, students were reportedly being sent home or, or punished for, for, Choosing to wear their hair that way, uh, this was taken by by you know many of the students as both uh, racially prejudiced, but also directly a, a direct attack on the kind of uh, sense of greater self esteem and, and and great racial pride and uh, kind of self determination that was you know the heart of uh, the Black Power movement and kind of the sentiment of the time period. Uh, so. Th- that was happening at the school. Uh, there was also uh, incidents of kind of unfair uh, disciplining of students. You know, if there was a conflict, uh, black students would be you know expelled or suspended. You know, whereas if there was a uh, a white student in the same conflict, you know, maybe there was a fight in the hallway, uh, black students get expelled, the white students don't get punished at all. Um, and so these are the kind of things that were happening at the school. And um, by that, you know, by that point in the march, you know, students were, were very upset, fed up, um, and wanted to uh, speak out. Um, students were unhappy about the policies. They're also unhappy that they wanted more Black history in the school curriculum and so forth. Um, and so, what ends up happening is that uh, 
the students at the school, the high school students, were already in in community or in, in connection with the University of Washington Black Student Union. Um, one of the things that the college students did is to kind of organize and mentor uh, local high school students throughout the city, including at Franklin High, but at other schools, uh, encouraging the high school students to create their own local black student unions at their high school. Um, so all that to say, you know, there were these pre-existing connections and relationships. And so when the high school students decided that they wanted to protest, uh, they called upon the college students to to be there and support them. And so, um, again, the, this, this all kind of comes to a head. Um, the high school students with the college students as allies um, confront the principal of the school, uh, you know, stays a demonstration in the principal's office. Uh, it ends up causing the school to be canceled for the day. School's closed. Um, police are alerted to the scene. Um, and, you know, uh, there's a tense sort of standoff. Eventually, uh, there's a negotiation agreement and, and there's a, an agreement that they would um, kind of meet to discuss the issue with some mediators the following week and things kind of calm down from there. <clears throat> um, a fascinating history in itself. Um, I bring it up here because what we see is that um, af in the aftermath of that protest at Franklin High School, several members of the college BSU and some of the Franklin High School students are later arrested by Seattle Police, so you know Seattle PD, Seattle Police Department, uh, for uh, you know their involvement in the protest, basically for uh, you know some misdemeanor uh, trespassing or, or you know some you know yeah some kind of uh, charge related to their their protest activities. Um, and it just so happens, at least as far as I could tell that they are arrested on the very same day that King is assassinated, right, on April 4th. Um, and so the arrests and incarceration of these individuals, along with the assassination of, of King, both to, together um, really stoke this kind of frustration and uh, indignation that was felt throughout the, the city's Black community, particularly among kind of more youth oriented or to younger um, younger members of the black community um, and all of that sort of serves to kind of further charge the atmosphere and, and kind of put greater pressure on uh, elected officials and other other officials to um, you know respond or to address you know the grievances um, that's that's sort of that moment kind of encapsulates this kind of dynamic between, you know, local things happening and, you know, the national and maybe even international political developments, uh, all of which are sort of coming together to kind of really, um, really create a, an environment in Seattle where, uh, you know, more direct, more uh, di disruptive pol politics and protests, you know, became... Uh, if not necessary, at least, you know, became um, 
seemingly appropriate or, or really sort of matched the spirit of the time. So that's the story, or at least part of the story, in Seattle and at the University of Washington. But let's jump over to the other side of the state. What is happening over in Pullman? How are campus politics and activism and events like the formation of a Black Student Union, how are all these things playing out differently in this very different context in eastern Washington at Washington State University? Right. So at eastern, in, in eastern Washington, at Washington State University, this context of 1968, um, you know, it has certain, there's certain threads of continuity and there's certain aspects that are, are different uh, in terms of continuity with what's happening in, you know, Seattle and elsewhere. Um, you know, students at the at Washington State University are also uh, following the news. They're informed about current events, you know, what's what's happening, you know, with the Vietnam War, what's happening with, uh, you know, King's assassination or other major events. Um, you know, uh, students are keeping up to date with, you know, informal channels of communication, talking to their friends and family back home or maybe visiting during breaks and, and hearing the updates. Um, you know, there's... Uh, you know, newspapers and other kind of news media, which at times can be like read against the grain. Sometimes it's, you know, um, looking for uh, what's been written and, and taking it with a bit of a skeptical eye. But at least, you know, using newspapers as a in, in like television news and so forth uh, as a way of staying up to date on current events. Um, and so, you, you know, many of these kinds of uh, frustrations or kinds of... Uh, you know, sentiments are present on the campus of Washington State University, uh, which has its own, you know, small, um, both kind of, you know, kind of white left, kind of progressive or, or liberal kind of uh, white students and faculty, as well as a, a small kind of black uh, activist community on campus as well, activist body of students. Um, by the this kind of April May of '68, um, that's when the Black Student Union first emerges as an organization on their campus. Um, it seems as though you know the exact date of when it is established is, is not exactly clear, um, but you know in this kind of spring uh, of that year, um, the combination of um, the re outreach from the from the Seattle activists coming to Pullman that seems to be a factor that you know individuals from the University of Washington came from Seattle to Pullman to kind of meet and to encourage um there was also folks who you know kind of again heard about what was happening at you know other schools and wanted to kind of be in solidarity with these other uh manifestations of the Black Student Union um, so they established their own, um, again, sort of responding to some of these national developments, but also reflecting some of the kind of local uh, campus-based, you know, uh, developments, right? So even before the Black Student Union itself was established at Washington State University, there was already, you know, Black students organizing, in, you know, to honor Malcolm X or to, you know, have... Uh, 
poetry or other kinds of events celebrating Black pride and Black empowerment. Uh, and so there was already this sort of consciousness by, by many of the students, um, but it sort of, it's kind of expanded and, and increased and, you know, broadened. Uh, the participation is broadened um, by the spring. Again, it, it, to a large degree, also motivated by King's death, right? That King's assassination uh, is another sort of big motivator that we see uh, on the campus of uh, Washington State University. And then um, there's another specific event that, however, local event where um, a a racist incident happens on campus um, that, that really sort of brings many of these things to the surface. Uh, and so what happens is that there's a, a group of uh, Seattle youth, these were sort of teenage high school students, um, who were traveling around the state of Washington uh, in a program to visit different universities and colleges. So this was like a kind of recruitment kind of trip. And they were visiting various schools. And when they got to Washington State University, uh, unfortunately, they experienced a number of discriminatory and, and racist incidents. Uh, this included uh, an interaction with staff at, in the campus housing where staff members uh, seemingly implied that the students were uh, suspected of being thieves, even as they checked in for the first time. They, they were basically, you know, they just got there and they were checking in and, and some of the staff people were uh, telling them they had to leave their names and their phone numbers and their addresses uh, because of recent thefts. And uh, the students understandably took this as uh you know, some kind of insinuation that they were themselves untrustworthy. Um, later on, investigation found that, that that was actually a standard practice, that just giving your name and your and your address and your phone number was, was just part of the regular procedure. Um, but it seems that the, the tone and the, the kind of way in which it was communicated uh, seemed to, you know, give this sort of sense of hostility um, so, so that was sort of the, the very first introduction to uh, this sort of campus. Um, later on in the day, uh, there was another incident where, again, working with staff at the, in the housing and dormitories, um, there was supposedly going to be a dance that, that was for the students, for the visiting students to you know, enjoy like an evening social um, that seemed to be abruptly canceled without any explanation. Uh, leaving the students to feel like uh, it was canceled because, you know, racial discrimination. Um, uh, this was then followed by another incident kind of later in the night when uh, some of the group were walking to a particular dorm uh, and uh, were uh, insulted with the N-word and, you know, sort of yelled at and, you know, you know some of the College student, white college students um, was yelling at them outside the, out, the, out their window and throwing items at them um, and, you know, uh, kind of abusing them in that manner. Um, and, and so with, with these kind of series of uh, kind of incidents with staff on campus and then particularly this kind of racist tirade uh, with some of these students on campus, 
uh, the group eventually decides to cut short their visit and just leave abruptly in the middle of the night. Um, and so after being on campus for, you know, really just uh, uh, an, an evening, afternoon, evening, they decided to leave. Um, that then sort of kicks off uh, a number of responses um, by black students. And we're really when we see the Black Student Union emerge uh, as a uh, organization, as I said, it, it seems as though they were, had been reconstituted as a Black Student Union a bit earlier than that, maybe even in the previous month in March. Um, but uh, um, by this kind of incident that happens in May, uh, with the high school students, they definitely are, uh, you know, speaking out. Um, one thing that the black students do, there's a group of black football players who decide to boycott uh, the team activities. There was a, a spring football game scheduled and they choose not to participate in, in protests. Uh, other black students uh, start a letter writing campaign uh, writing to both the president of the university, but also the governor of the state of California, uh, state of Washington, uh, and you know, um, kind of writing letters to other Black student unions, trying to get them to kind of speak out on their behalf. Um, there's meetings with the president, meetings with other officials. There's an investigation, um, and you know, it's really this moment where you know we have. Uh, these African-American students um, and the Black Student Union really sort of uh, confronting racial injustice that they had themselves experienced and, you know, that had already been, um, it's like something that was already kind of on their minds as a concern and as an, an issue and as a grievance, but it's in the context of these high school students who had been treated so so poorly um, that uh, really motivates the expression of outrage and, and a resistance that, that materializes. Um, oh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, th that's sort of gives us a sense of kind of what's happening uh, at Washington State University. Um, and, you know, by the end of that school year, uh, these different threads, both kind of national, local, um, kind of propel the Black Student Union to continue on with uh, their protests and activities, you know, into the summer and into the following year. And I'm curious about what happens next in Pullman um, and how Black activism in this very different context in Eastern Washington, how it differs in the years that follow from what happens in Seattle. I'm talking in the late 1960s and, and early 1970s. And one of the outcomes I hope you can talk a bit about is that student activists successfully forced the creation of a Black Studies program at WSU. And to me, that was really fascinating to, to be able to make that happen in the face of such a, a hostile reception in Pullman. Not to, you know, paint too rosy of a picture of, of what's happening in Seattle, but um, as you say in the book, you know, Pullman is a very different place than Seattle. So can you talk a bit about kind of what happens next after the formation of the BSU and after the spring semester of 1968 at Washington State? Sure. So, yeah, um, after the spring semester of 68 into the fall and into the following year, um, 
Black Studies becomes the next sort of major campaign for the Black Student Union at Washington State University. Um, and by the end of that school year, after numerous you know, challenges and hurdles and, you know, setbacks and so forth, uh, they actually are able to uh, win the creation of a Black Studies program. Um, interestingly, if we think about in comparison to what's happening in Seattle at the University of Washington, um, they there is also a Black Studies program created at the University of Washington in response to the pressure put up by Black activists uh, and so there is, a, again, sort of a thread of continuity there um, between both campuses and, and really what's happening nationwide, right? So um, at this time, you know, we have universities all over the country uh, who are creating Black Studies programs um, in part because of, you know, activism on their respective campuses and, and pressure from students. Um, and also, you know, as time goes on, certain administrators and presidents kind of are, are themselves following national trends and decide to implement or to support Black studies uh, as a way of preempting what was likely to be protests or, or pressures uh, as a way of maybe trying to get ahead of um, the, the you know, likely disruptions. Um, and so, you know, part of what we see is that there's a kind of institutional embrace of black studies um, by many colleges and universities uh, by the late 60s. Um, that itself is also a product of the admirable success of the black student movement. Um, but, you know, that kind of buy-in by administrators is also part of the story. Um, so, so we have the creation of, of Black Studies at uh, Washington State University, as you as you asked in your question, um, but there's also continuing challenges at at the school, right? So, um, at Washington State University, in particular, as I was um, interviewing members of the you know people who had been involved in the Black Student at the time, or kind of as I was sort of researching the the history you know one thing that kind of came up often unprompted was how there were you know death threats that were coming to the black student union at washington state university um there was um real concern about potential um violence from either local townspeople or maybe some kind of white supremacist groups in the area or, or other maybe unorganized, uh, you know, posses or other sort of, you know, groups um, that, you know, uh, of, of white kind of locals um, who may or may not have been affiliated with the university directly, uh, but who were, you know, so incensed by this kind of black political movement, you know, felt called on to, um, you know, respond with violence. Um, and so you, you have, you know, their, you know, individuals shared with me some of their concerns in response to these concerns. 
members of the Black State Union at Washington State University um, were uh, known to be armed, known to have, you know, guns on there, you know, for protection, um, either, uh, yeah, sort of as part of their kind of normal day-to-day activities. Um, and, you know, you one individual uh, who was the, the president at the time, uh, who was the president for a time, uh, Ernest Thomas, um, got a gun permit from the, you know, county office, from the local authorities, um, which was in itself kind of indicative of the seriousness of the threats that both uh, this individual, Ernest Thomas, and the white kind of law enforcement who were otherwise not very likely to support uh, the you know black activists uh, also agreed that uh, or at least accepted the the calls for um, the need for protection um, and so uh, that's a key difference right you know when when talking to and interviewing folks from the University of Washington in Seattle you know they talked about you know police harassment you know being arrested after the Franklin protests for example. Um, you know, facing certain kind of prosecutions and, and other uh, restrictions or hostility. Um, but, you know, death threats or the kind of open need to carry arms for, you know, self-defense was not to the same degree, you know, a part of the experience as, as it was told to me, you know, as based on, again, you know, my interviews and based on the research that I did, that, that just wasn't uh, anywhere near the same degree of concern uh, for the activists uh, in Seattle. Um, you know, some, you know, I mean, there, there may be some exceptions to this side. I guess I want to qualify to say, um, again, I don't want to pay to, uh, paint a picture that, you know, Seattle was not without its danger. Um, and that the activists at the University of Washington weren't themselves courageous and, and facing risk by speaking out. Uh, I'm sure that they were. Um, but I think it's it's an, it reflects some of the differences to say that, you know, in Pullman, um, there was this sort of greater degree of kind of direct threat. Um, and I think that does serve to um, limit some of the impact that the students are able to have uh, you know, sort of the, the threats take their toll, adding stress, adding, you know, you know, contributing to burnout and so forth. Um, but I think the, all the threats are also sort of reflective of how there isn't a larger kind of black community that they can draw from or they can feel a sense of, you know, maybe a retreat or some kind of uh, sanctuary. Um, and so all of those things, I think, you know, help to explain how... Um, by the end of this period that I talk about in my book, we see in Seattle at the University of Washington, there's a, there's a creation of this institution, the Office of Minority Affairs, which continues many of the work, uh, you know, supporting uh, students of color, implementing, you know, recruitment and retention efforts, um, you know, and, you know, similar sort of programs, you know, for decades to come, even to the present. Um, so you really what we see at the University of Washington is the creation of this uh, institutional structure, which kind of carries on many of the demands of the black students um, at Washington State University. 
there are reforms made, but they don't have the same level of permanence or uh, same level of kind of consistency. Um, you know, you have the creation of certain programs for recruitment, but then, you know, they lose funding or they get, you know, replaced by something else. Um, you have, uh, you know, sort of shifting and changing, you know, reporting lines and different kinds of uh, degrees of um, investment in some of these things that happen over the years. And so, you know, we basically see that there's, um, you know, there's a certain kind of respect that students at both institutions deserve for the kind of risk that they took and the ways that they spoke out. Um, but the level of impact is different. And, and certainly at, at Washington State University, um, there isn't the same kind of institutional uh, investment and kind of ongoing consistency that we, that we see elsewhere. So as we begin to, to wrap up here, I'm curious if we could zoom out a bit and talk about some of the long-term implications of these years of, of activism on campuses in the Northwest. And in the book, as kind of a, a, a coda uh, toward the end, you use the example of someone named Emile Petrie to, to explain how the events that you describe in the book of these of these handful of years, how they reverberate down through the decades throughout the region. So could you talk a bit about sort of what happens next and what are the, the, the longer term effects of what you describe in the book? Sure. So, um, yeah, Emile Petrie is a, a mentor, um, you know, someone who has been uh, a great uh, inspiration for me. I've gotten to know him personally, and he was an advisor for the Black Student Union when I was a student. Uh, he is now retired, but, um, you know, a great uh, champion and and uh, a friend of students, you know, for generations. Um, I also want to mention he has he has a book as well. His book is called uh, Revolution to Evolution, and it, it talks about uh, the Office of Minority Affairs at the University of Washington uh, throughout you know the late twentieth century. So uh, Revolution to Evolution: The Story of the Office of Minority Affairs and Diversity at the University of Washington. I'd encourage everyone to check it out, um, and so. In addition to sort of being advisor and writing a book and and so forth, uh, Emil Petri, I, I write about him in my book as a way of talking about this legacy of the Black Student Union. Um, what happens in '68 again, just to back up a little bit, is that um, there's a number of protests, you know, developments, meetings, committees, so forth over that year. Um, this kind of comes to a climax with a sit-in occupation protest of the office of the president of the University of Washington, President Charles Odegaard. Um, this several-hour confrontation standoff uh, eventually ends in a kind of kind of compromise agreement. And out of that agreement, um, there is a number of reforms that take place in the immediate aftermath and in the years that come that really do reshape the university in, in all kinds of ways. Um, one is an effort to increase the enrollments of both uh, black black students, but also uh, Latino and uh, Native American students in particular, and, and later expanding to uh, other uh, students of color uh, and, and poor white students, I should also mention. 
Um, so there's a kind of uh, direct outreach to kind of add to add to the student body. Um, there are new efforts for tutoring services, uh, for you know uh, kind of courses that would be kind of remedial courses or other courses to help students who who may need help uh, improving their skills to a college level. Um, there are kind of cultural programs. So, you know, the most obvious being the Ethnic Cultural Center, um, which is built in the kind of years after, but, you know, comes again out of, you know, the demands and, you know, uh, uh, the Black Student Union, um, Black Studies, as I also mentioned, uh, is, you know, created in the late 60s and continues on uh, into the 70s and, and, and so forth. Um, and so, all of these things, um, with the exception of ethnic studies, which are with black studies, which eventually uh, is in a different department, ethnic studies department, um, the tutoring, the recruitment, the cultural programs, uh, the you know advising. I didn't mention that, but you know also academic advising and so forth. Um, all of those things, all those kind of multicultural student services kinds of activities. And initiatives are uh, eventually brought together and housed under a new Office of Minority Affairs. Uh, and so in 1970, the Office of Minority Affairs is established, uh, and Samuel E. Kelly, uh, Dr. Samuel E. Kelly, becomes the first vice president of minority affairs at the University of Washington. Um, all of that, the creation of the vice president position, the Office of Minority Affairs, and the various programs are directly connected to the the kind of vision and you know pushing of uh, the Black Student Union uh, and this sort of 1968 campaign. Um, all of that sort of carries forward into today. Uh, and so the Office of Minority Affairs and Diversity continues to exist at the University of Washington campus. Uh, many of the kind of programs like the Ethnic Cultural Center and the Tutorial Centers and uh, and so forth, continue to serve students today. Um, and Emil Petrie is, is a wonderful kind of bridge figure because he was both a student who was involved in the 1968 BSU. Uh, he was a kind of participant in the protests in the president's office. And then later on, uh, beginning in the 1980s, he returns to the university as an administrator, uh, first serving in the tutorial program as a chemistry teacher chemistry tutor, uh, and then eventually becoming uh, uh, one of the kind of uh, assistant vice presidents um, in the Office of Minority Affairs over, uh, you know, several decades of service. Um, you know, his particular role um, is, you know, symbolic of uh, a much broader pattern, right, where you had, you know, many members of the Black Student Union went on to careers in public service in a number of different arenas, some in education, some in law, uh, some in, you know, labor rights or, uh, you know, public, you know, direct elected office and, and so forth. Um, and so Emil certainly is not unique in that way, um, but in the way in which he was able to have a long career, uh, continuing to serve students, uh, continuing to push the university forward along racial lines 
at the same school that he himself was a student protester at, um, that is that is unique. That's what you know. The only case that I know uh, of that um, in in the history that I cover, and and I'm sure somewhat unique, at least somewhat unique uh, around the country. Um, and so uh, that's that's part of the legacy. That's part of the history. That's part of the way in which this continues to impact us today. Um, we have this like kind of direct line of uh, institutional reform uh, through the Office of Minority Affairs and Diversity at the University of Washington. At Washington State University, you know, in Pullman, uh, um, there's not the same clear line of succession, uh, unfortunately, as I was mentioning earlier, um, because of um, a different level of investment, because of, you know, the challenges of the social social political climate and, and other restrictions, um, what we have are, um, you know, what we have are individuals and departments who are working as best they can. You know, even to this day, you know, there is a number of different uh, units on the campus, including folks teaching courses and those doing outreach and recruitment. Um, that is carrying along the legacy and the spirit of what the Black Student Union were pushing for, um, but are doing so under new offices or, or different institutional structures um, that have shifted over time and and haven't had the same consistency or um, you know clarity that we see at uh, at other places, um, and so um, that that too is part of the legacy. I mean, I, I think the the Black Student Union deserves credit for really pushing for the kind of multicultural and you know diversity equity and inclusion kind of efforts um, that have now become established at you know schools all over the country um, that is also true at Washington State University and those continues to be moved forward by great folks doing hard work um, uh, we don't have the same, level of, you know, clear kind of lineage. Um, but uh, that's sort of part of how the story has moved forward. And and, and to this day, you know, we have uh, examples of, you know, ongoing efforts to uh, increase students of color, to make sure that they have persistence in graduation, to try to increase faculty of color, uh, to try to make sure that the curriculum has uh, content on African-Americans and other kind of historically marginalized groups, um, all those things continue um, at both schools and are, are definitely carrying on the legacy of the Black Student Union. And then, Mark, at the end of my interviews, I always like to uh, ask my guests to, as a way of kind of summarizing the book, we're kind of thinking big picture about the book, to, to kind of take a different perspective on the story that they tell. So I'd ask you here to imagine yourself as someone, rather than someone that wrote the book, instead imagine yourself as a, a reader of this book who is thinking back and, and kind of remembering back to what they've read, maybe a year hence or five years into the future, what would be a takeaway or something that you hope that they would remember about this book further on down the line? Let me think for a second. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I, in terms of what I would want someone to take away or to remember about the book, a couple of different answers come to mind, depending a bit on the point of view of, of the particular reader. 
right? So for those who are uh, new or who are, you know, still learning, still getting acquainted with the civil rights and black power movement, you know, I want them to kind of have a takeaway of kind of seeing some of the nuances of, of both and particularly of black power. Uh, oftentimes the black power movement is framed as just kind of angry rioting or, you know, violent, you know, militants. Um, and so really I think the Black Student Union really helps to, again, add nuance and helping us to see that, you know, within the range of groups, you had some who, you had at least some, you know, who were pushing for meaningful reforms um, and, you know, using a variety of tactics uh, to engage and to inspire. Um, so that's one answer. Uh, for those who are maybe coming at the book uh, from an interest in the history of the West or the history of the Pacific Northwest, um, you know, really just kind of taking away uh, the ways in which um, African-American political history has a place in the Pacific Northwest and, in you know, in the West more broadly, um, that, you know, really from World War II, uh, at least since the 1970s, uh, we have a number of different organizations and, you know, different groups, you know, challenging a number of institutions, a uh, number of, you know, structural uh, inequalities um, in the, in Seattle and, and elsewhere during the time period, um, which uh, I think both adds to our understanding of kind of African-American history as well as our, our understanding of the history of the West. Um and then I think maybe the third answer would be for, for folks who are coming at it maybe with an interest in activism today or who are interested in kind of thinking about movements and strategies. Um, I think that there's a there's a some takeaways to, to from the book in terms of thinking about, you know, some of the some of the successes that the black students were able to achieve um, strategically. Um, in particular, uh, the ways in which one can uh, kind of bring together different groups who don't necessarily have the same goals or, or the same, you know, perspectives in mind. So, you know, in particular here we have, you know, students, black students who are able to make connections with kind of grassroots black communities um, or, you know, African-Americans who are able to uh, a lot ally themselves with other people of color or, you know, similarly marginalized groups around the country and around the world. Um, and to use a number of tactics from kind of direct confrontation and, you know, building takeovers to, you know, um, outreach efforts and, you know, mentoring programs and tutoring programs and other kind of, you know, uh, consciousness raising activities, right? You're seeing that kind of breadth of tools and seeing that range of, of methods, I think can be another kind of useful takeaway for for activists or folks who are interested in activism. To, and it's a really kind of interesting case study, uh, you know, kind of what, how, what worked or what didn't work or, or how was the campaign pursued. Um, and one that can potentially inform how future campaigns or how, you know, strategists going forward might uh, either adapt or, you know, uh, take from some of these strategies or maybe avoid certain things um, uh, that they could 
kind of learn from or, or, or use going forward. And then for my last question, before I let you go, uh, I'm always interested in getting a preview from my guests about what they've been working on in the meantime. Um, I know this book had kind of a long, uh, a, a long road to publication, and it's been out for about uh, half a year now. But um, if I know historians, you probably had a couple other projects cooking in the meantime. So what have you been working on? What can we expect to see from you next? Yeah, um, working on next is... Uh... You know, there's a number of different ideas. Um, and so um, one thing that I've been kind of working on is a, a piece, perhaps an article that um, shines a bit more of a light on uh, the leadership of black women in the black student movement. Um, you know, the, the presence and the participation of black women is something that I do talk about in the book. And as best I could, I, I tried to sort of make sure that their outstanding contribution was was recognized. Um, but since the book was finished, uh, with some of the kind of conversation that has developed, I've, I've been able to get access to a bit more material that I could potentially, you know, source material that I could use to tell a bit more substantively um, about some of the outstanding, you know, Black female leaders that were in the Black Student Union in, in the state of Washington. Um, so that's sort of one project that I hope to kind of uh, bring out as a uh, as an article or perhaps a longer piece. Um, and uh, you know, and an, another sort of related project is sort of thinking more about um, the the Black Student Union, both as a strategy and as a kind of organization across the West Coast. Right. I mean, at this point, um, there really hasn't been uh, a a book, to my knowledge, you know, to to date, that kind of talks about all this kind of regional wide kind of effort of organizing different universities um, and kind of what the various students were able to accomplish at the various schools. Um, and so, some kind of project like that, you know, would also be potential interest. Um, and then, you know, finally, you know, this is, there's an interest in terms of um, looking more in depth into Seattle's um, black power movement, right? Think different organizations, you know, more about kind of the, the larger network of, of groups and uh, activities. Um, that would be another kind of potential project. So so I'm, I'm kind of, as you can see, have a few different ideas. Uh, we'll see what I can get done, and, you know. What, what comes next, but um, that's kind of some of the things I'm kind of moving towards next. Dr. Mark Robinson is an assistant professor of history at California State University, San Bernardino, and is the author of the new book, Washington State Rising, Black Power on Campus in the Pacific Northwest, which came out uh, just last year in 2023 with NYU Press. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Mark. My pleasure. Again, thanks for inviting me, and uh, I appreciate the support and the attention. Great work that you do. Thank you.